Love them or hate them, federal proposed rules have a habit of becoming final. And for contracting officers in the Defense Department, the latest acquisition regulation means they're obligated to use something called the Supplier Performance Risk System in evaluating bids. For what this all means to contractors, we turn to Piliero Maza attorney Kevin Barnett. Kevin, good to have you back. Uh, Great to be back, Tom. This rule, well, first of all, let's start with the Supplier Performance Risk System. There are a lot of these kinds of similar-sounding systems across the government. What is this one, and what is it assessing risk for? So the Supplier Performance Risk System, it's a DOD database that itself is not new. It's DOD's authoritative source of supplier and product performance information. And it tries to evaluate and monitor suppliers, track corporate business practices, identify parts of the supply chain that may increase the risk of performance or the risk of counterfeit parts. And it's quite the multi-headed hydra. It has a supplier risk component where it generates a supplier risk score, it generates a price risk score, and an item risk score. And it gets inputs from all kinds of systems all over the government, from the CPRS system, the contractor performance rating system, to the self-assessments about your cyber capabilities, as well as other contract performance reports and alerts that the government may issue. So it's a breath mint and a candy mint all wrapped in chocolate, you might say. You could say that. And for, I think, some of the DOD contracting officers that are using it, it is uh, that delightful mix of a little bit of everything. Well, I guess the question then is, why did there need to be a rule in the DFAR causing contracting officers to use it? Why would they not use it in the first place to evaluate bids? I think there have been instances where it has been used to evaluate bids. The new rule just puts everyone on notice that it must be used to evaluate bids. And that's pretty significant for a variety of reasons. First and foremost, the system generates a new risk score, actually a new series of risk scores every single day. So the new rule is putting contractors on notice that you really need to stay on top of your risk scores that are being produced by this system if you want to be competitive in future DOD evaluations. It is also starting to bring to the forefront some of the cybersecurity regulations that have been percolating and in place for a number of years now. For many years, the supplier performance risk system, most contractors' exposure to it was the requirement to input their self-assessment of their compliance with NIST uh, 800-171, which is the full breadth of best practices in cybersecurity. And it was just a go, no-go requirement. You need your evaluation in there. Now that these scores are actually going to be used in the evaluation, this is the first step along with CMMC coming out later this summer, that cybersecurity is going to be considered in all DOD procurements. And just to put a sharper point on this, it's not really a bid evaluation tool so much as a contractor evaluation tool, almost like third-party risk assessment done in the private sector. It doesn't look at your pricing or your delivery schedule or your labor costs or any of those technical requirements that might be in the solicitation, but it looks at you as a company, correct? I would actually say it looks at both of those things. Instead of looking at the you know, schedule and information that you put in your proposal, what this is now bringing to bear very clearly is the company's history of performance. So if you have a history of delayed performance or have a history of providing 
products that have manufacturing issues or have noted vulnerabilities in your cybersecurity that have been identified on other contracts, it's going to be brought into this system and will be reflected in future evaluations. Got it. We're speaking with Kevin Barnett of Piliero Maza. He's an attorney that specializes in these kinds of things. And in many ways, then, it sounds as if it operates almost like a credit score with rules and things changing daily. That's a great way to compare it. It's uh, three different credit scores for three different aspects of a company's performance with respect to a certain product or service that they're offering. And the environment changes a lot, too, and it seems like that's something that suppliers have to keep up with. What I mean specifically is that you mentioned special publication 800-171 from NIST. That's about to undergo a major revision. It's out for comments now. So when those are in and the final version comes out probably sometime in the fall, then That's a whole exercise companies are going to have to do to make sure they are compliant or following the new guidelines in 171. Absolutely. This is going to hold them accountable for maintaining compliance with the latest cybersecurity. It's also going to hold them accountable for maintaining the best supply chain risk management practices, because all of that goes into these scores. Um, If you're using suppliers that have been identified as risky suppliers or have history of supplying counterfeit parts, you know, that's going to negatively impact your score going forward. And a big problem with some of these systems over the years has been supplier recourse if they feel they are flagged unfairly in some aspect of their business, pricing or delivery or quality, whatever it might be. And can things be changed on appeal that are in this particular system? The technical answer is yes. The SPRS system has a challenge process where you can look in your score, identify some record that has been entered for consideration that's negatively impacting your score and challenge it. It's kind of an automated process, pops up, you write an email, they say you need to provide objective quality evidence to dispute it. I don't know what that means, except perhaps DOD likes another opportunity to create an acronym. The give and take of that process, though, it's unclear. It's really DOD gets to give you a thumbs up, thumbs down, deny or accept your challenge, and contractors' recourse, or at least intermediate recourse, seems to be limited. And what is the actual limit of the obligation on the contracting officer if they're asked to consider the Supplier Performance Risk System, SPRS? Do they have to follow necessarily if one bid is better on a price and delivery front, but the lesser of the two bids has a better rating in the SPRS? Are they obligated to pick that one? No, well, I don't know. The new final rule is very clear. Contractors must consider this information. And it must consider each of the three scores that are produced, the price risk score, the item risk score, and the supplier risk score. But how exactly that is used in comparison with the other evaluation criteria is not clear. I think this is going to be a fruitful area for a lot of uh, clever bid protest arguments coming up in the future for exactly that reason, is you have a must-use without a how-to-use requirement. Now, increasingly, some social types of impositions have been put on suppliers, and that's accelerated during this administration, on their energy usage and their carbon footprint, if they can even figure that out, what they're doing on DEI, their labor practices. Are those part of the SPRS yet? They do not appear to be explicitly part of the SPRS yet. I could see 
you know, those issues percolating their way up, you know, as part of the CPAR score, as those become requirements of the contract and contractors fall short of those, they could get a bad CPAR rating, which is then flipped into the SPRS rating. But as of now, there are no explicit requirements for some of those more progressive administration goals. Well, let's wait a minute, you know, and maybe it'll, it's going to happen eventually. But in the meantime, the best recourse for contractors then is mind your P's and Q's. Absolutely. Mind your P's and Q's, stay on top of your daily risk score, know where those inputs are coming from and challenge it with, you know, your objective quality evidence. It's interesting. One of the most of the comments or a large number of the comments on the proposed rule, which now became a final rule, were various contractors questioning the inputs saying, well, this system is known for faulty, unreliable reports or that system can easily be manipulated. And the general response from the agency, from DOD, was, no, we're going to use it in, in only this minimal way that mitigates those concerns. So the skeptic in me doesn't necessarily trust those assurances, but there is that challenge opportunity for what that's worth. Attorney Kevin Barnett of Piliero Maza, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his analysis at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, 
And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you purpose, helped shape your life? 
1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort I, of the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. And um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.